and welcome to another episode of Determination, Deliberation, and Dragons. I'm Peter. And I'm Izzy. And today we're going to talk about disasters. Woo! And so my how disasters relate to my fifth story in the Pana and Wave Skimmer series of short stories. Chapter 5. But before we get into that, Izzy will talk about a story that she has chosen that relates to the theme of disasters. Yeah, it is. It's a really amazing um, novel by Jesmyn Ward called Salvage the Bones. And it actually won the National Book Award, which, I mean, books that don't win awards are still definitely worth reading, but this book deserved to win this award because it's incredible. And um, it's about the buildup and a little bit of the aftermath of the Hurricane Katrina for this one family that's living in Mississippi, a black family focused on the, the daughter and um, her brothers and father living um, the first few days before, or like the week, two weeks before Katrina hits, showing the progression of their lives until the storm happens and kind of them making preparations as they hear the weather reports and also just sort of following them in the real big twists and turns of their lives because a lot of drama is going on. But I just wanted to read this one selection from the one of the final chapters of the book, The Eleventh Day Katrina, that describes a little bit of when the hurricane makes landfall on um, they're right on the Gulf Coast in the southern part of Mississippi. So, when Mama first explained to me what a hurricane was, I thought that all the animals ran away, that they fled the storms before they came, that they put their noses to the wind days before and knew, that maybe they stuck their tongues out, pink and warm, to taste, to make sure, that the deer looked at their companions and leapt, that the fox chattered to themselves, rolled their shoulders, and started off. And maybe the bigger animals do, but now that I think that other animals, like the squirrels and the rabbits, don't do that at all. Maybe the small don't run. Maybe the small paws on their branches, the pine-lined earth, nose up, catch that coming storm air that would smell like salt to them, like salt and clean burning fire. And they prepare, like us. The squirrels pack feathers, pack pine straw, pack shed fur and acorns from the oaks and the bowels of their trunks, line them so that they are buried deep in the trunks, so safe they can hardly hear the storm cracking around them. The rabbits stand in profile, shank to shank, smell that storm smell that hits them all at once like a loud sound. And they tunnel down through the red clay in the sand, down until the earth turns black and cold, down past all the roots, until they have dug great halls so deep that they sit right above the underground res reservoirs we tap into with our wells. And during the hurricane, they hear water lapping above and below while they sit safe in the hand of the earth. So in my edition, that was pages 215 and a little of 216 from Jesmyn Ward's Salvage the Bones. Very much about preparing for disasters. 
uh, in this case, Hurricane Katrina. But also, Peter's chapter just so happens to also be about preparing for a similar disaster, a huge storm, not necessarily a hurricane. Yeah, I mean, not too similar. Similar in the sense that they're both storms, but certainly different. There are different impacts, and the storm itself is just very different. But the focus certainly is on disaster and like preparing for and responding to disaster and experiencing it. So, but before we get into that, I'm just going to briefly summarize my story for you. And again, you can listen to the story in the podcast episode that we release alongside this one. So episode 8B. But essentially, Pun and Waveskimmer are traveling and Pana's arm is still broken. So they're trying to figure out what to do. They come across a port village, port town, that they just call the port. And Pana runs into some travelers who offer to help them with their arm and like take care of them and bring them to the port. And suggest that maybe finding a boat to travel across the bay would allow them to rest and like heal up without you know, hurting their arm anymore, which would happen if they continue to fly on Wave Skimmer. So there's that. Pana finds out that there's a storm coming. They need to help the villagers like prepare for it. And they learn that there's like this one house of like super wealthy people who who are like closed off and they can better weather the storm but they don't allow like any of the other villagers into that house so everyone else kind of has to just like deal with it in these really like flimsy wooden houses like that are closer to the water so there's conflict there vare is also there and she's also like seen just the disparities in how people are equipped to handle the storm and she's like trying to to help everyone and basically both characters kind of on their own ultimately like become very fed up with those people who are just enclosed in their like one big compound and help the rest of the villagers once like the storm is like really bearing down on them and like breaking apart some of the houses they both help the people like get into this compound and get to safety and like open open the doors to everyone else I think that pretty much sums it up in like in general. There's a lot of like other things that go on. The rock you didn't mention. There's a rock? Oh, um <laughs> the the important part of the story. <laughs> the climax of the um, story. Yeah, so Pana still has that stone, that magic stone thing, and there's a giant like wave, like a tidal wave that comes in. It's gonna destroy everything. And they still haven't gotten all the villagers inside yet. Um they're having like a standoff the guy who owns the house is like you guys can't come in here and all the villagers are like but like our houses have already been destroyed like please let us in and then a tidal wave comes and you know it's going to destroy everything but pana is like holding the stone and the stone basically like causes the wave to just like flow over them in the air and then it just like flows back out to sea eventually so it like protects everyone 
that part was very cool. Yeah, that was that was fun. I liked having a wave, and I think like I don't know if I put it in, but I was like imagining like seeing some like large sea creatures just like in the waves above it them. It was not in, but that would have made it so cool. It would remind me of um. The, I think it was the Prince of Egypt when he parts the Red Sea, I think. In that scene, you can, like, in the movie version, you can see, like, the little an animals and fish. I, I think that's familiar. I think it also happens in, like, either Avatar, The Last Airbender, or Legend of Korra. Okay, they part the or sea Or possibly both. They don't part the sea, but they go, like... So when Aang is taking the group on the serpent's path, and they, like, oh. they briefly go on water and they're like air they're water bending like the water around them so there's like an air bubble for yes. them and like i think they see a sea monster the same thing happens in legend of korra i don't know if they see a sea monster though but they're like mako and korra are going underwater to get to air bending the air temple island um in the first season oh and it's like i mean it's the same idea i don't know if you see like sea creatures but i in one of those cases, you do see sea creatures. I'm I'm certain. Definitely. Maybe. In the Avatar one, I think. Um, well, the sea creature like attacks them. They're like, "Please don't! We're just trying to get to land." I forgot that that other instance of it happened in Korra, but it does feel funny. Like they establish it in Avatar, and then they use it, you know, for a much more casual reason than fleeing to safety to find refuge. Because um, the Avatar gang is traveling with some refugees, and then they just use it to like. It's not a very casual like moment. They're going to like take out a mom. Oh really? But... Oh okay. I yeah. don't remember much. <laughs> I have technically seen Korra, but I don't remember it very well at all. But either way, the important part is like it's really cool, and you can see the sea creatures in the water. Okay. Well, it's still cool that they establish a thing and then they use <laughs> magic system thing in the next iteration. Indeed. Uh, and I'm continually confused and curious about how this magic system in your story works because the magic stone, so many questions. It can absorb a, a shadow monster thing now and from the Guardian of Riotho, for those who've listened to that previous episode, check it out. Or it does something where it keeps the water from drowning them. I guess that's kind of a smaller version of what it does here with the chapter four where they are in that cave and the waters should engulf them when the, they destroy the ceiling and the water comes down through the ceiling and should drown them all. So this is like a giant yeah. version of that with the tidal wave. Indeed. Yeah, I don't really know what the stone can and can't do like in its entirety yet. And I'm kind of like, honestly, I'm just thinking more of like Lord of the Rings, sort of, where like Gandalf, maybe people who are bigger fans like really know the limits and capabilities like of his power, but I have no idea and it seems so random. There are like moments where he's like, the sun is now here and like I've blinded the entire army and like now we can just like walk right through and like do whatever. And then there's other moments where he's like, just like in the hobbit he's like well i have a sword and i was like but what about your magic staff and he's like i got a sword <laughs> so <laughs> i don't know what he can do and that's kind of what i'm picturing the stone as being 
with I think it's a little bit more defined than Gandalf. Like it's protecting people, but I I really don't know what its ultimate like powers are. Yeah, this magic system in Lord of the Rings is a very soft magic system. It's so interesting, but it frustrates me sometimes because it doesn't explain itself enough. Which is fair. Like you know, magic systems can yes. do that. But I totally, um, I'm not a fan of the Lord of the Rings magic system all that much either. No, I, I mean, I like the mystery, but I there are certain limits where I'm like enough mystery for now. But I think this is a good amount of mystery for the stone so far. And I think I was reading it as maybe like, well, so far it's done. All it's done is like stop disasters of like big or small proportion. So the disaster stopping stone. So you, I'm using that word a lot to like tie the theme in, of course. <laughs> but yeah, it's somehow related to the end of the world from that previous, previous chapter two. There, there's a small hint that something to do with the end of the world is going on with the stone and maybe stopping it. But I don't know exactly what yet. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know, but definitely, I mean, the end of the world, the apocalypse, is a disaster. I think we can safely say that. And there's definitely this idea that the stone, like, I don't know if it necessarily, like, can prevent the apocalypse. And I think there is some sort of, like, relationship between the space that it's in and, like, who has the stone possibly so like you know if right now they're like in the hudson bay and if a volcano were to go off in like italy for example i like would the stone do anything like eh, probably not how um, so like what do you mean it's like i just think it's not close enough to like the volcano in italy so it has to be like i think there is like this element people or yeah i think it's like it's kind of around proximity so it can't you know it can't do things like over huge huge distances mm -hmm. maybe mm -hmm. although i guess it depends on the scale of the disaster too though because like a volcano is you know localized to where the lava can reach and we see from like what the stone has done so far the tidal wave obviously it covers like miles and it it protected everyone from that and I imagine it protecting like the forest in the surrounding areas from that as well. So it's not just like a you know protecting humans; it's protecting just like life in general. But you know we've also seen it in the cave with Pano, and the water like comes down and it protects you know Pond and Wave Skimmer. So that was like a smaller version of that. The the shadow demon thing from Riotho, like it took that and like protected Pana from that. So. I think it just depends on like the scale like if there was like a global disaster all of a sudden and there was like an asteroid that was coming towards the earth i feel like it potentially could protect from that even though the asteroid is like you know super far away but i think like a smaller scale like more localized thing you would probably need the stone to be closer what about but I'm not what about, sure. When you say volcanoes, I think also a big problem for them is the volcanic ash that they release. And it travels 
hundreds of miles in the atmosphere. How would it be able to deal with that kind of like big dispersal or dispersion over huge geographic areas of like volcanic ash like that? Or a similar, uh, like nuclear apocalypse, radiation. Yeah, I mean, I guess this goes into like some of the world building in my mind too. And like, I don't know how much ultimately is like revealed in this specific story. But ultimately, you know, this this world is our world to a degree uh, <laughs> with some wiggle room. <laughs> and I imagine most of the world as, or maybe not most, but like huge portions of the world as having been like destroyed through like nuclear weapons and stuff. Definitely, like, the majority of the U.S., in my mind, is, like, this desert area, um, with the exception of, like, the Adirondacks in New York State. For no particular um, reason. I, I couldn't do that to my mountains. <laughs> um, so, and also, I figured it's, like, the southernmost point where, like, people managed to survive and, like, for whatever reason, it was just, like, off the radar. Well, like, New York. You know, New York already destroyed like way before that and they were like well that's all of new york state i guess and they were just like <laughs> forgot about you know upstate new york so obviously you know that happened if you have like most of the lower 48 states all you know this this turned into this huge desert thing um you know where was the stone during that like why didn't it protect from that i mean ultimately it's you know what i choose but i think in my mind there there is this connection to you know who actually has the stone why they're using it like what are they using it for and like i think it's important that like pana has like no idea what it does they're just like walking around experiencing these these potential disasters and the stone like protects them and it protects the people around them so i think part of me is thinking like maybe the stones were just like lost and because they had like no connection to people or to a person they didn't protect the people or just like maybe i don't know maybe there was just something about the type of disaster and like the ways in which the disaster like occurred that wasn't protected by the stone i don't know that does make me think about a tool is the rock sentient or not sentient? Is it just a tool or is it actually alive to some degree? Because there are times when Pana has the stone and the stone seems to act all of its own volition, where it sucked up the Guardian of Riotho and we're like completely surprised because Pana, of course, doesn't know how to control the stone and it just kind of does it on its own. Yeah. I mean, in none of the cases that the stone has worked so far, have we seen Pana actively and knowingly use it. Even in this case, like Pana's, you know, walking through the town and they're speaking, but I wanted to make it clear that they really don't know what they're doing. And this isn't really something that they're even aware of doing. So like they have, you know, I, I make it so like Pana's speaking in like a different voice that's not quite their own and i think there's this idea that like the stone i think you're right that the stone like is is alive in a way and it kind of like 
knows when and how it should be used. And I think that was just important. I mean, there's a lot of reasons you can get into, like, why it's important to, like, show people not being able to use, like, a certain power. But I really just wanted to, like, point that it's point out that it's not, you know, Pana, it's not, like, any individual person who can decide to, like, use the power. There's no, like, using it, if that makes sense. It's all just, like, things happen, and, like, the stone, which is the power, like, ultimately does what it wants to do. Well, knowing that does add some more to my understanding of how the stone should work. But I keep still expecting Pana to be level one to level two to level three and slowly learn the secrets of the stone and how to use it. So to think that it can't really be something that is usable, but something that you carry and transport, and if it wants to help you, then it will, is different. I mean, I'm still, since it's also still the beginning stages of Pana having the stone, I was still waiting for the, the time to drop the training montage where Pana mm-hmm. learns uh, or finds some secret text or something. Yeah, and I think you're just making me think about how the stone is used beyond this story, which obviously we haven't gotten to yet. Even though Pana doesn't necessarily figure out a way to use it, I think they begin to understand it a little bit better. And there's like an expectation that, oh, if I do this, the stone will do this. So they come into a relationship with one another in a way. And like, even though Pana can't really use the stone, and I'd like to think that the stone can't really use Pana, even though it like sort of did in this. It did seem a little bit like possession. Yeah, and like, I need to edit that and make it a little bit less possession-y. <laughs> and like, I, I tried making a point at the end of like, Opana was like aware of a lot of the stuff, and they knew that they were talking. It's just like the particulars are a little bit fuzzy. And no, that made it sound like, more like, think back that it. made it sound more like they were being possessed, a backseat driver in their own body. Oh, okay. I was hoping it would be kind of like, well, they had like some control. It didn't sound like that. So it's not... Okay. It's not like Ginny Weasley where, like, she just forgets everything. And she's like, my memory is completely blank. But um, if that didn't work for you and, like, it seemed more like possession, I'll I'll work on it. I mean, I think either way, like, forgetting everything or still remembering things, it it just, Pana didn't feel like it was choices that they made or actions that they, at least in part, chose to do. Uh, There was a line where... um, something like they felt emboldened beyond their normal capacity, but it was still their own bravery that they were showing. That was more clear to me. Mm. But um, the forgetting things part, or the um, no. <laughs> the part where they were like, I did this thing, but I don't know how. Okay. Not that it can't be a little wrapped in mystery, a little enigma, but... um. I guess figuring out a way to walk that line. Yeah, I'll have to work on that a little bit because I want it to be more of this relational thing. And I think it's important too that, um, you know, most of the time, like the stone does stuff, sure. But I think most of the ways that 
Hana like helps people is not necessarily with a stone. It's all just like through talking with them in relationships and like learning about them. So I'm trying to make like the stone is, you know, super cool and important, but at the end of the day, like you don't need the stone. Pana doesn't need the stone in order to go about doing the things that they're doing. I don't know about the tidal wave part. <laughs> well, with with some exceptions. <laughs> um Certainly with the tidal wave, and um, I'm eating my words now because <laughs> the final story, like, absolutely you need the stone. But I would like to think that the, the more important part isn't the stone. It's, like, Hana's willingness to go and explore and to try to do their best for the world. And if, you know, if Pana wasn't there, like, if it was Vare holding the stone, would the stone work? I don't know. I mean, Vare's also... I tried pushing the idea of like her caring and being a good person in this one. It almost came across, but, like, but um, I think partly I wasn't sure which parts she was reacting to things and which parts were like her own initiative. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess like disasters, like which parts of this is survival mode and which parts of this are things that she would do if it wasn't in extremity. Oh, okay. Like, she's choosing to, like, live with people, and she does seem, like, very much kind of like Pana, a loner, like, not very many friends or people that she gets along with. And she's around a lot more people and putting up with them, but I don't know if it's just part of her, this is a serious situation, so I have to help out, or her genuinely being... I mean, not that she seems evil or ruthless entirely, but I just don't know her character well enough at this point to know, to know where the line is. Which, I mean, we're still getting to know her through these pages, so it's fine to not tell everything right up front. And that's fair. Like, at the, at the end of the day, like, I mean, I, you know, I would like to think that she's this good person... And I don't know how much that comes across in the writing, though. So um, definitely something I need to work on. But, like, I, yes, like, I don't know. I'm just curious about, like, the stone and how that would work with other people. And, like, I, I just genuinely don't know how exactly the stone works and, like, what that relationship with the person and what the person's motives, like, need to be. Mm -hmm. So I'm pushing for, like, this idea that, you know, it can't be used. The person needs to be, like, doing good things. But, you know, it it could change. We can we can see some different things happening, possibly, if I so decide. <laughs> yeah, I mean, up until this point, it is clear, Pana, when the stone has been used or when the stone uses itself, it's in moments of this person needs protecting now from, like, imminent death. But... Pana isn't themselves aware of using the stone, and so I never really thought about motivation being a factor necessarily, mm -hmm. since the stone just kind of turns itself on and turns itself off. But um, it does definitely seem like the turning on and off is motivated by 
life or death circumstances, or maybe not life and death per well, pretty much at this point is prim pretty serious. Yeah. <laughs> it can't be like even well, I don't know if the stone was directly next to Pana when they broke their arm or not. But yeah, breaking the arm doesn't count. Yeah, so it doesn't do everything. And I'm one thing that I was thinking of when I was like developing the stone was the idea of it really being a protector against like environmental things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've seen so far like the two water things and then like the shadow demon, which, you know, maybe blurs that line a bit. So, I mean, Pana falls and like breaks their arm. Stone didn't protect them from that. Would it protect them from like, you know, if, if Bari went at them with like a, a weapon of some sort? Like, I don't know. And I kind of feel like, I mean, maybe this is another thing. I kind of feel like the stone, generally speaking, is something that I want to be used in a larger way with like a larger focus on the world. So even though it does protect like Pana in like two specific circumstances, at least with the shadow demon, like it's also protecting everyone else in that village, like in Ryotho by getting rid of the demon that's like plaguing them for their entire existence. And in this chapter, like it's protecting the entire village, the entire like surrounding area from the giant wave. So I want to try to push this idea in like future stories as well, that it's more of like a larger scale type of thing. And I mean, we'll, we'll see how it can potentially impact like human caused disasters versus like natural disasters. So I think that's like another distinction that I'm trying to kind of like work out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we haven't seen any real human-caused disasters. I mean, sentient beings, maybe if the shadow creature is considered that, but nothing that is human. Yeah, I mean, we'll definitely get to, like, one human disaster, <laughs> um, and we'll talk about that more in the next story. Mm -hmm. but, but for sure. It's basically just the idea of, like, larger-scale type things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think is important. But that's also, I mean, that's just the way that I think with a lot of these stories and just a lot of stories that I read in general. I'm, like, much better able to look at, like, larger scale, like, ge geographical things, less, like, character-driven things. So that's just kind of what is on the forefront of my mind when I'm writing mm. this. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of it from the opposite direction of um, how would a character act differently and, you know, in, in times of war or in times of disasters, people come together and there's a solidarity sometimes or other times in times of disasters, there's looting and a little anarchy where everyone for themselves mentality and people act an extreme version of how they would normally act under less dangerous circumstances, which is oh, interesting sure. to think about. And definitely the characters do act to a certain degree within the bounds of like their own natures. So they can't just 
go out and start murdering if there wasn't, you know, at least a little bit in, in their nature before that. But definitely, I'm interested by, like, the th parts of yourself that are revealed or that are, you know, maybe strengthened in your character. Like, the three new characters that were um, introduced. Yes, that word. Um, and Bob. Tally and MC, three new people we get to know, but I'm not good with naming everyone. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and they are not even living in the port, although two of them were born and raised in the port, and they're just there for market day when the storm hits, and their immediate reaction is, "Let's go help put up sandbags." And you see, my first thought was like, "Are they like?" some kind of leader figures in the village or something and then I remembered no they live in a farm not even in the port and it's just you know they're just good kind-hearted people that are willing in hard times to step up and step in to help out but on the other hand the evil family rich evil rich family just kind of is even more set in their own ways of like we're not helping you at all until they're kind of forced to. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to think that, you know, Bob and the others, like, really kind of push Pana and Vare to be better in this situation. You know, that's not, like, explicitly described, but, like, they both meet Bob and they both do some good things here. Even if it is, like, reactionary and in response to this disaster, this storm. But yeah, no, Bob is just like one of my favorite characters and I've been trying to put him into a story forever. He's based, so like, I, as I've explained before, like almost every single person I write about is based off of like a real person. And Bob is just this guy who was also named Bob. <laughs> who um, I used to know, he passed away a few years oh. ago, but he was just like this amazing, like incredible hard worker, kind person. He would take care of my dog Summer when we would go away. So he was Summer's oh. uncle. And I just like wanted to put him in here. And I, I think he was like really just the right person for at least this part. And like you can see, like, as Izzy said, like the storm is coming and he didn't even realize it was coming. And he's like, Well, I'm here now, like better like lift these these bags of sand to this person's house, like <laughs> start like shoring up all the all the defenses here and like making everything waterproof as best as I can. So he's definitely like this wonderful example of just like a disaster is coming and he's like, well, we're all in this together. So he was, he was fun to write about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting, especially for like a disaster story for me to think about how much extreme circumstances like that can reveal hidden depths in a person that you wouldn't see under ordinary circumstances. Or um, especially even for Pana and Vare, like, they are responding, but how you choose to respond is important. Even if it is just like not something you did, you didn't initiate it, but it's still your own choice. But it does make me wonder about after the d disaster is over or after um, the immediate danger is over and how people choose to react after that and do they go back to the way they were acting before 
So partly the re the responsiveness makes still makes me wonder because it it does make me think they were reacting because of extreme circumstances and it does reveal they have the capacity to do certain things and Vare has the capacity to be a helpful caring person and help out people she doesn't even know but under ordinary circumstances when it's not like the duress of a life or death situation, how would she act? Is really, I guess, my deeper question. Yeah, I mean that's an incredible point. Do you do you continue to hold on to this like newfound sense of community and like togetherness? Or do you go back to like what you said, just whatever you were doing before? Mm -hmm. So and this is especially just important for Pan and Vare, like Vare's hunting Pana down, so like is is that going to change or will they like come to some sort of understanding mm -hmm. i don't know i mean i do but <laughs> i don't know yeah but it makes me think of how um like when disasters happen and people around the world donate to different funds to help with the disaster relief but then a, mo a few months after the disaster donations drop off and then the rest of the world kind of forgets about it and i it makes sense. You don't have the thoughts of a place 500 miles or thousands of miles away from you in the top of your mind all the time. But we're in a globalized society. Like the world is connected whether we want it to be or not. And I think for the most people, people want it to be connected even with the consequences of, of globalization. But um, it does make me wonder um, going back to the day-to-day -day is necessary because being a, in a constant state of emergency is incredibly stressful and not sustainable. But I guess thinking of how do people learn how to live in a more consciously community-minded way it, rather than falling back into the, the patterns that we have set, which I don't know if Bari is going to do that or not. I don't know also what Pana will do because... I mean, they're definitely more inclined by their nature from what has been shown of their nature to be helpful without prompting the prompting of a disaster. But um, I guess to I'm thinking about how could they both do it more intentionally? Because at this point, Pana still isn't at the point where they're like thinking, I'm going to stop the tidal wave, me making the choice to do so, or me saving the world from the second apocalypse that may or may not happen. But I do see them making um, more choices to intentionally be brave. They tell themselves to choose the brave choice. And I appreciate that um, being put in. Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, maybe, maybe they will learn something from this and be better able to respond to future disasters. And I think that's like the worry too, like not just that you won't learn anything, you'll you'll lose the sense of community that you got from that disaster, but that that will happen and you'll face another disaster, which is just like especially important, you know, in our own lives, like at least, you know, in the Northeast US and like Southeast US. Like, hurricanes are only, like, getting more frequent and worse. So, like, 
you know, even especially just the idea of like Hurricane Katrina, where like there are still communities that are like still trying to recover from that. And that was in like 2005, I think. So there are parts of New Orleans that like still haven't recovered entirely. And yet they've faced like other hurricanes since then. So like, how do you hold on to everything that you've learned and all the people that you mutually helped like during that time? And how do we as like people who don't necessarily experience those disasters, but like Izzy said, we're aware of them and like we sent aid at like one point, how do we keep all those places in mind and like do our best for those places while also like still living your day-to-day -day life and not, you know, worrying all the time, but doing your best to like make sure those things don't go forgotten i don't know it's it's a lot to think about and it's certainly a difficult issue in a lot of circumstances mm -hmm. like puerto rico too still hasn't recovered from that hurricane like five years ago and like we just you know that was a big issue like for however long like a month or so um and then we all just like forgot about it and as we see, like, now now with Ukraine and, like, all the refugees, like, how are we going to keep that in mind going forward? And how does that connect, too, to, like, other refugee crises? And what do we do about those after we've seen what we can do with Ukraine? Mm -hmm. I think, obviously, that's, you know, it's a lot of big topics and not necessarily in the text. But definitely, like, I mean, that's the joy of, like, fiction. It, it makes you think about all these other things. At least it's the joy for me. Maybe you aren't as filled with joy reading this and, like, thinking about refugee crises. And obviously, you know, not that those things, like, bring you joy. I think it's just interesting. Like, we, we should be, like, horrified at all these crises. Like, do our best to, like, help the people involved. Um, so joy is, like, not the right word for that. It's just interesting using fiction as a way to think about all of those things. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah, I would say no answers to those questions. I have no answers. You can't solve all these global crises alone, is <laughs> he? Going to the text, I do think it is great to think of fiction and be able to expand out from there because it really... It is, you know, crea the creation of a world, but also sort of an introduction and a tie back into our own world. Because all of these fictional worlds that are created in the pages of any book come from the mind of a person who is alive or was alive. And everything ties back to their own personal experience and their own imagination that is inspired by real things. Yeah, I guess the other thing I just wanted to emphasize is like the family that lives in that like giant house and that's like walled off and protected from the storm or protected from like most of it. That, you know, that tidal wave would have taken it out too, probably. Oh yeah, I was thinking there's um, no way. I mean, they when they do storm the house, the tidal, they don't notice the tidal wave yet, but then when they notice the tidal wave, and they, 
Even continuing to ask to go inside will not help you in this case. Yeah, there's really nothing they can do at that point. So, I mean, definitely this idea that, like, eventually disasters, like, outgrow our own capabilities of responding to them. So, and it's really, like, I mean, I'm kind of frustrated with how, like, the stone works in this case and, like, the metaphor there. Because, like, nothing can save them except for this stone, which I'm like, eh. But, I mean, you know, I, I didn't set myself up well for, like, a good solution. <laughs> so that's that's fine. They can't breathe underwater like some dragons. Oh, wave skimmer would have been fine. You know, he's going to survive it all. He's, he's okay. <laughs> Yeah, but definitely just, like, in, in smaller storms and in smaller cases, like, I feel like, you know, the disaster isn't always just the storm. It's how we are prepared to face it and the infrastructure that we have to face it. And the fact that, like, this one family can survive probably, like, most of what can be thrown at them, but, like, no one else has that same ability. Mm. Like, they're, you know, they're all living in houses with, like, um, the houses in this society are structured so there's only like three walls with a removable fourth one and they're all kind of like smaller and closer to the water so definitely the risk isn't like spread equally and the the safety like of the safety like of the village is like very uneven which is a whole nother like so, so you have, like, not just the environmental disaster, but also the disaster of unequal societies as well. Mm-hmm. I was, it was actually, well, small detail, I guess. But it was interesting to read the detail that the big fancy house had water flowing down the sides of the walls in order to prevent the salt from building up. This seemed like an unusually salty coastal area. Maybe the maybe Love. the ocean was extra salinated from the apocalypse or something. But um, the salt buildup seemed like amazingly fast on everything and was crusting over the walls of all the smaller houses. But then this big fancy house just had water running down the sides of it so the salt wouldn't build up. Maybe yeah. it, salt does damage to structures. I don't live by the ocean, so I don't know. I mean, it's usually, you don't have, like, issues quite like this. I was just thinking, for sure, like, if you're by the coast, you'll get, like, a nice healthy layer of salt on you if there's, like, a good wind and some ocean spray. I think it, like, ultimately can, like, cause some damages, probably not too much. In this quantity, probably. But I also just, like, was thinking one of the signs of just excess and wealth in a lot of cases is how people use water. So the rest of the people, they're not going to necessarily use the water to like, you know, wipe their houses clean of salt constantly. Like they need that to drink. They need it to bathe and like stay, stay clean. So it's only this one like super wealthy family that can afford to bring in all this water and like constantly shower their house. So I think that was more um, 
I, you know, partly like a practical, like we want this thing to be clean and not damaged from the salt, but definitely like more of just a symbol of just complete excess of this one family. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking of it more from a structural nature because I didn't know if salt was harmful to buildings or not. But that also makes a lot of sense. I think certainly, you know, if you have a giant pile of salt, just like <laughs> next to your house at some point, you're going to have some problems. <laughs> so this is definitely like an extreme version of just like salt everywhere. <laughs> Although actually now that we're thinking of inequity, salt was a source of wealth back when back in the day when there were no refrigerators and things you could keep food preserved with salt and it was basically like having salt was like oh, true. being wealthy I mean, in this world it doesn't seem like that but um my dad read a book on salt and i know the smallest smallest amount that he talked to me about it but it is interesting mm -hmm. also the way that um, different resources can become coded depending on your circumstances and the context, and maybe even the time period. Lobster in Maine used to be like a poor person's food because anybody could catch it, and it was just like, yep, you got it. It's, it's easy to get and plentiful, so it wasn't something in demand for people who had money. And now... They literally gave it to prisoners. They did? Yeah. I didn't know that. But now it's like super fancy food with completely different cultural connotations. Yep. So yeah, I'm, it's interesting the way things can change. And I mean, going back to Salvage the Bones, it definitely deals with these kinds of inequities a lot. With the main family of the book living in um, rural Mississippi and very much um, uh, living with uh, lower income, not a lot of resources to speak of, small town and even like smaller number of people who really care to pitch in. And definitely there is a community sense that um, we'll look out for each other and we'll look out for our own but that would be mainly the black people and the black community looking out for itself and then the white community being like the other side of the tracks basically and not not caring and also partly def or not partly but definitely involving the systems that have created those inequities so i don't know what systems quite exist in this post-apocalyptic world because a lot of the systems were completely destroyed but different social and institutional systems from salvage the bones in, in American society that have created the inequities that make people so unprepared or that cause people to be so um, unprepared and facing such a lack of resources. But transitioning from my last point, we're going to share some of our favorite lines that we each picked out from this chapter to close up the episode. So I will go first and my line is something from the end of the chapter. There's a surprising uh, 
I think love story is a little too much. It's not there yet, but a surprising little like emotional development for Pana at the end, um, where they meet this boat captain named Like, and she is a little bit socially awkward. Not a little bit, a lot of bit socially awkward, and um, she and Pana become friends during the chapter, and they end up taking her boat. Or not taking, but like she ends up taking them on her boat, Pana and Wave Skimmer and some other people across the bay after the storm is over. But this is them on the boat um, when the sun is rising. And Pana is looking at like, and this is the sentence Her curly hair was tied back with a golden band, and her eyes sparkled with just a hint of the sun. So I just thought that was nice imagery. I'm always a fan of imagery. Um, and also because she hadn't really been described in detail before that, so I knew she had curly hair, but I didn't really know what she was wearing or anything. And I also didn't really realize... I mean, it doesn't focus on Pana's feelings for her until the end of the chapter, so this extra bit of imagery does help convey just the fact that they're noticing shows that it's important enough to them to notice um, these sorts of details. And later, like, it says that they hold hands and it's, like, clear they like each other, sort of. But I thought it was nice. A little added detail. I don't know if she's going to join their the traveling group or not, but... Um, I thought it was cute, because Pana doesn't seem to get along with people very much. Or doesn't feel comfortable around people much. Well said. And because we didn't have any technical difficulties, and I'm definitely not recording this weeks after the fact, let's now say my favorite line. So I really enjoyed the line where... Pana meets the captain for the first time, and they ask, So, um, I'm looking for a boat, and a captain, I suppose. And then, like, responds, I hope you find a boat, and a captain, ideally the captain of said boat. I just find it so wonderfully awkward, and I love the sincerity. Like, like isn't trying to be snarky or anything. She's just genuinely that awkward and I love the humor in this you gotta add some like fun awkward humor but with that being said we hope you enjoyed this episode thank you so much for listening feel free to check out our patreon the link is in the description down below and we hope that you have a excellent day bye mm -hmm.